Good morning. Welcome to Pediatric Career Rounds. I heard a good morning back. We'll, keep, we'll start that tradition in the fall. I'll say good morning and everyone say good morning back. Welcome to Pediatric Career Rounds, June. June 4th, 2014. We're into June. Uh, a couple of reminders. We have our quiz bowl next week, next uh, Wednesday, for our graduating residents at Grand Rounds. We have graduation for our uh, graduating residents at the Skiway on June 12th. I would say let Cameron Cuddy know if you're interested in attending. We have uh, email reminders. We're 10 days away from our Imagine Chad Appreciative Inquiry Summit. We're already at 30, which is a good number. The more the merrier, the more the better. The more broad representation we get, the more voices, the more ideas and thoughts we get, the, the better the outcome. And the, quite frankly, the more fun it will be. It's a, it's a jam-packed but fun day. Uh, interaction, uh, participation, not sitting on your, uh, not sitting on your button, just listening. So you'll see the email. Hopefully you'll have a chance to sign up and join us next Saturday down at Colby Sawyer College as well. We are excited today in that uh, Pediatric Grand Rounds also today kicks off the 19th Annual Pediatrics Ethics Conference here at Dartmouth. And um, that will be an all-day scenario, including Dr. Mercurio speaking at noon today in Conference A with a case conference presented by our residents. Our Pediatrics Ethics Conference is sponsored by the Ethics Institute at Dartmouth, by the DHMC, Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center Bioethics Subcommittee, and uh, Dr. Renat, who I think is the chair of that subcommittee, is in the room today as well. We thank you for co-sponsoring Dr. Mercurio, and it's uh, also sponsored by Chad as well as Children's Hospital at Dartmouth-Hitchcock. We are excited and pleased to welcome back Dr. Mark Mercurio uh, from Yale. He spoke to us on um, the ethical dilemmas at the issues, ethical issues at the borderline of variability in January of 2013 and was very well received, which I imagine might be one of the reasons why George helped uh, on the committee bring him back for the, bio, uh, the Pediatric Ethics Conference. As I mentioned, Dr. McCurry is a professor of pediatrics, Yale University School of Medicine, and the director of the Program for Biomedical Ethics at Yale University School of Medicine, a neonatologist at Yale New Haven Children's Hospital who grew up in Illinois and Connecticut, did make his way down to Princeton University for biochemical sciences uh, degree and then Columbia for his medical degree. Uh, made it back to Yale New Haven for residency. It's been there since, although it looks like you picked up a philosophy degree at Brown University along the way. So we know that this is an excellent uh, speaker from our previous experience, and I'll let Dr. Mercurio take the podium. Thank you for the, for the uh, kind words, and thank you for the invitation. And I, I'm well aware that's where we're going. Okay, sleepy time. Uh, I'm well aware that it's an honor to be here, uh, particularly on this day, and I thank you very much for that honor. Um, I've been asked to speak about, or actually, I think I picked this topic. Uh, so if you hate the topic, you know who to blame. Uh, informed consent, um, which seems like a pretty straightforward issue, and it is until we dig a little bit deeper, which we will. I have no uh, financial conflicts of interest to disclose. Eleni uh, sent me things saying that for in order for you guys to get CME, I had to discuss what my goals were. And that's a hard question. So I, I sat in my office and thought, well, I got the girl I want and the job I want. Uh, and I get to be a visiting professor at Dartmouth. So what goals are there left? And the goals are really to have a, a wider national platform and a job where your advice is really, really taken seriously by people. And I got to wait for this guy to retire. <laughs> then I'm stepping in. 
Okay, but the goals for today are a little bit less ambitious. Today I want to discuss the elements and the ethical foundation of the doctrine of informed consent and review some of the practical aspects as well as the ethical aspects specific to pediatrics, both clinically and in the clinical research settings. And I want to begin the conversation, please, with an idea from John Stuart Mill and his essay On Liberty, written in the late 19th century. The only purpose for which power can be rightfully exercised over any member of a civilized community against his will is to prevent harm to others. His own good, either physical or moral, is not sufficient warrant. Over himself, over his own body and mind, the individual is sovereign. These are words, almost sacred words, in Western civilization. Um, and we take them seriously. And from these words, gradually progresses an idea that I think leads to what we call the doctrine of informed consent. This evolution, there are a few important milestones along the way. Some of you are familiar with these stories. Some may not be. There was a woman in the early 1900s, Helen Schlondorf, in New York City. Mr. Schlondorf had an abdominal mass. And the details of the story medically are not so important uh, for our purposes today. She had an abdominal mass, and the plan was to examine her under ether, which was a bigger deal in the early 1900s. And she agreed to the exam, but not to surgery. So they put her to sleep. They did an exam. They found a fibroid tumor. And they said, OK, well, no sense waking her up and putting her asleep again. Let's just take it out now. So they did the surgery. And there were complications from the surgery as well. And Mrs. Schlondorf uh, brought suit. And this, it's surprising to think that you can actually bring suit, because she said no surgery. They did surgery. Ah, but they did it for her own good. This became an important legal case of the 20th century. And the ruling was made by one of the most important jurists of the 20th century, Benjamin Cardozo, who said every human being of adult years and sound mind has the right to determine what shall be done with his body. Interesting, it was about a woman, but he says his body. <laughs> and a surgeon who performs an operation without his patient's consent commits an assault for which he is liable in damages. Now, this evolution continues to what was probably the most influential event with regard to the evolution of bioethics in the 20th century. We saw a fantastic, amazing evolution of bioethics during that century. And, uh, and probably the most important aspect of that was the Nazi era. I imagine everyone in the room is familiar to some degree or other with the experiments that were carried out, so-called experiments, so-called clinical research, um, that were really horrific. Um, terrible, terrible things done to prisoners uh, in the name of clinical research. As the war ended, the winners got together and, of course, tried the various what they considered war criminals in Nuremberg. Um, and in addition, the physicians who had carried out these horrendous ex supposed experiments were tried. And at the end of this, the winners got together and said, well, this, if this was clinical research, we got to make some rules about clinical research. And the Code of Nuremberg was formalized in 1947. And rule number one is that the voluntary consent of the human subject is absolutely essential. And they specified a bit more. They said it has to be without coercion. So you can understand that if a gun is held to someone's head, said, would you like to volunteer for this experiment? And they say, yes, that's not uh, the voluntary consent. They were very familiar with the concept of coercion, given this was all done in the shadow of the Nazi physicians. Um, sufficient knowledge and comprehension of the elements of the subject matter, the nature, duration, and purpose of the experiment, and the method and means, these are all the components the patient needs to be, the subject needs to be made aware of these. And all inconveniences and hazards reasonably to be expected 
from the participation in the experiment should also be explained to the subject. Now, there's many rules about informed consent, many things written, but it's worth noting that in the Code of Nuremberg, these elements that they build in here are pretty much still the foundation of what we call the doctrine of informed consent. It's also, again, worth noting that this was written in 1947, largely by Americans. Um, and 1947, it's a, it's a fascinating accident of history. The 1947 is also the year that penicillin became the drug of choice for syphilis. So this disease that had been around for a long time and had been treated in various ways, not with any great effectiveness, finally there was a reasonably effective treatment for syphilis. It was penicillin. That was in 1947, the same year the Code of Nuremberg was written. And many of you are also familiar with the irony here, which is that while the Americans were writing this code, African Americans in the southern part of the United States, many men with syphilis were participating in the Tuskegee study, which was a study to follow the natural course of the disease. No treatment was given. Now, one could argue that when there was no effective treatment, no treatment being given is not so terrible. There are other aspects of this. For example, the, the men who participated in this trial were never really told what was wrong with them, were, were never really given appropriate treatments. And among the amazing things that were done in 1947, now, yes, we're going to use penicillin for syphilis. These guys were never offered penicillin. They were never told that was going on. This study went on, and this all sounds like ancient history to the residents in the room, but to, uh, to those of us on the wrong side of 50, <laughs> this wasn't so long ago. This study went on until the early 1970s. And it didn't go on because suddenly all the physicians who were participating in this study woke up and had a sudden uh, epiphany. It happened because the New York Times got a hold of it. And subsequently, uh, a senator from New England uh, got a hold of it. And, uh, and this was brought to a conclusion. But uh, this, well, this didn't end until the New York Times got a hold of it in the early 1970s. So needless to say, this Code of Nuremberg was written, but necessarily wasn't absolutely followed by everyone, not even the nation that had primarily authored it. But over time, it has led to this ongoing evolution of the concept of informed consent. Now, that concept is both legal, if you will, and medical ethics. And, uh, and I'll give you the, the important legal, the best legal advice you ever got right here at Grand Rounds. You might want to write this down. Don't take legal advice from a neonatologist. <laughs> Remember that. So I'm not here to give you legal advice. And your, your attorney, your hospital attorney, can do that far better than I ever could. But there's an ethical aspect to this, which I want us to consider today within all this background. Um, it is worth noting that uh, another one of these milestones was in 57. A man named Salvo was paralyzed after a procedure. He was never told that was a possible risk of the procedure. The court ruled in his favor, saying that you have to disclose the risks and the alternatives, and not to do so as a cause for legal action. And this is, this, the Salvo case is often cited because this is the first time that the term informed consent appears in our literature from that uh, judicial ruling. So let's talk about it. It's not that complicated at all. There's four elements of informed consent. The first is the provision of information. What's the patient's diagnosis and situation? What is it we propose to do? What are the risks and benefits that we propose to do? And what are the alternatives? What happens if we don't do anything? What happens if we try these other treatments, these other alternative treatments or tests that are available? Traditionally, in the early years when this was carried out, a physician-oriented approach was done, which is what, what sort of things do you have to disclose? Well, you would disclose what a reasonable physician would disclose. 
This is the so-called standard of care, which we still live under today, which is, what are you supposed to do? Well, you're expected to do what a reasonable physician would do. The trouble with the standard of care, I would argue, and I have argued, uh, and I think I argued last year when I was here, was that the standard of care ultimately boils down to, gee, Ma, all the other guys are doing it. <laughs> so if you, when you finish your residency, move to a community where they give antibiotics every time they see a viral infection, and you don't, you, my friend, are not following the standard of care for pediatric medicine in that community. Doesn't necessarily mean you're doing it wrong. Standard of care is an interesting, uh, interesting guide, but it's not necessarily the answer. And indeed, in the world of informed consent, a more patient-oriented approach is something that we seek, which is not just what would a reasonable physician disclose, because maybe reasonable physicians never mention you could be paralyzed. So if none of the other guys mention it, I don't have to mention it. A patient-oriented approach is, is focused more on what would a reasonable patient want to know? Would you want to know if this test you're about to get could paralyze you? I think a reasonable patient would. That shift to a patient-oriented, and indeed, we try to have elements of both in what we disclose. The rest of the four elements, one should assess the patient's understanding. Sometimes it's obvious if the patient's not an English speaker and you're doing this in English, that's not sufficient. But more subtly, what's the patient's mental status? What's the patient's mental status at the time of the conversation? And one is expected to assess the capacity of the patient to actually make these decisions, not just understand what you're saying, but make these decisions. We tend to think that someone has capacity. I mean, the, the physician's definition of capacity is usually agrees with me. So if I suggest the surgery and the patient says yes, well, obviously he's competent. And if I suggest the surgery and the patient says no, well, there's something wrong with this guy. We've got to get a psychiatrist to take a look at him. That's not really what competence means or capacity means. It's a more complicated concept and more complicated still in pediatrics, as we'll get to in a bit. But it nevertheless is our responsibility to on some level um, assess the patient's capacity. And lastly, we need to make sure that this is done without coercion. So that's pretty much informed consent. Um, but we have about 45 minutes left, so we'll do some other stuff. It is, I think, a pretty straightforward doctrine, if you will, a requirement of us, if you will. But there's some fascinating things about it. First of all, what alternatives should be discussed? Well, we got to discuss the alternatives. I would suggest to you that all ethically acceptable alternatives should be discussed. What's an ethically acceptable alternative? Well, an alternative has the potential to benefit the patient. You don't have to talk about coffee enemas. They're not going to help your patient. Um, do you have to talk about a different chemotherapy or radiation instead of chemo? Perhaps you do. Um, of course, an ethically alternative, acceptable alternative is one that's feasible. If, we can't, if the patient can't be moved to the Mayo Clinic and the Mayo Clinic's the only place that does the new procedure, then it's not really feasible and it's not uh, something that you necessarily have to offer. And it also does include, however, treatments available from other physicians or hospitals. Years ago, I worked at a, both at Yale as well as a smaller community newborn ICU. And I used to say to uh, the people when the, a child would be born at 28 weeks, and I'd say, well, we don't do that many of these here. We do them here, and I'm very comfortable doing this. So you should know that another alternative is you could go to Yale or to University of Connecticut or to Brown. Um, we could move you to any one of those three if you'd like, or we could stay here. Um, and other folks thought I was a little bit crazy. Fact of the matter is, those were alternatives. They deserved to know about them. Um, nobody actually wanted to move, but, uh, but they deserved to know that those were uh, feasible alternatives. A, a while ago, 
on the subject of offering alternatives. A while ago, I was visiting a professor um, someplace, and I met with the residents. I was telling you guys, this is my favorite part. I'm looking forward. Hillary's running an exciting show today at noon. Be there or be square. Um, but I was visiting a professor someplace, and they presented a case to me of a child who had lost uh, nearly all of his gut from volvulus. And the question they then asked me when they presented to me was not, you know, should we offer surgery? Is surgery an option? They actually asked me, is surgery something um, that they should be required, the parents should be required to do? I thought, wow, I didn't know we'd reached the point where intestinal transport was obligatory. Excuse me, intestinal transplant was obligatory. Had we reached that point? So we did a study. Um, we did a study. We interviewed, uh, we surveyed, excuse me, 433 neonatologists and pediatric surgeons from all over the country. And we asked that question about the ethical permissibility of intestinal transplant for a premature baby with short bowel syndrome. And what we found, if you look at the far left, let's see if I can do this without hurting myself. There we go. And, and you know, you can see that the surgeons are the, uh, the light blue and the neonatologists the dark blue. So ballpark, 5 to 10% thought that's just ethically impermissible. Because as you know, it's a long, hard road getting a transplant. And no one's really documented what your chances are of getting a transplant. And then after transplant, it's not such an easy road either. So some thought it's impermissible, and some thought it's obligatory. You have to do it. But almost everybody, 90% of all these physicians over the country surveyed, said that it's ethically permissible or optional. Intestinal transplant for short gut, it's ethically permissible. Not required, but permissible. What was interesting about this was that only 33% of them said they offer it. It's ethically permissible, but I only offer it to people one-third of the time. And this gets to, I think, the most important point about discussing alternatives in informed consent. And that's what I call the savviness requirement. So here we have a very savvy guy in the world of medicine. And what the savviness requirement is, I can, I can best describe this as an answer I got once with regard to hypoplastic left heart syndrome and speaking with a heart surgeon. And we talked about is comfort care only still an option? Some folks think it is, some folks think it's not. Some folks think that, that uh, the Norwood is, in fact, the outcome is so good, many people feel, uh, that, in fact, it's ethically obligatory, that parents can't say no. If parents say no, we're going to court. You may believe that or not. But my point is this. What I was told by a cardiac surgeon was, well, if they asked for comfort care only, we would do that. But I certainly wouldn't offer it. So that becomes an option for them only if they're savvy enough to ask for it. So if they have a brother or a sister or an aunt or an uncle who's a physician or a nurse, or if they're really good on the internet, then they're going to be savvy enough to know, hey, can't I just have this option? Well, yeah, you can. But if you weren't savvy enough to ask for it, it's never presented to you. The same goes for the lower gestational age limits, which we discussed last time I was here, and which get argued greatly in neonatology and in hospitals. And it fascinated me when I was uh, talked to a fellow from a, a a very prestigious uh, intensive care nursery out west who said, we don't resuscitate anybody under 25 weeks. I said, really, 20? So you won't resuscitate a 24-weeker. You don't offer it to parents. It's not done. And so what I wondered was, and I didn't ask at the time, but I should have, do you tell those parents that the hospital a mile away will? So when a woman's in early labor at 24 weeks, she has that choice to go there and deliver and have her baby resuscitated or stay here and not. Are they made aware of those options? Um, these are areas where we can't rely on the savviness requirement. If it is an ethically permissible option, the parents deserve to know about it, and they shouldn't have to be savvy enough to ask. Now, let's talk just briefly. All of this is built on, again, I'm not going to speak about the legal aspect of this, but the, some of the framework of ethics upon which these conversations are built. 
And there are four that I think really stand out. One is respect for persons or respect for autonomy. This gets to John Stuart Mill and Judge Cardozo uh, and the Code of Nuremberg and, um, and the, uh, the, the foundations, I think, of what your ethics committee certainly works with. This is huge. Honesty, this is virtue ethics. Virtue ethics says we should seek to imitate virtuous people and this is one of the virtues we think virtuous people have. Okay, so we feel we have an obligation to be honest. Honest, not just selectively honest. Another important aspect of this is the parent's right to decide for their child, but also the child's right to medical treatment. And sometimes these things collide. Some of our hardest work is figuring out what to do when those two things are in conflict or appear to be in conflict. And remember that rights, whenever there are rights, if someone has a right, someone else has an obligation. If the parents have a right to decide for their child, then you have an obligation to respect that right. If a child has a right to medical treatment, then I would argue that the pediatrician has an obligation to see the child gets that treatment. And again, these two may conflict. A classic case would be the misunderstanding we have about patient autonomy and parental autonomy. We deal mostly with kids. Now, the ambulance is carrying Mrs. Smith. Mrs. Smith teaches history at the local junior high school or middle school. And uh, the ambulance pulls into the ER bay here at Dartmouth-Hitchcock. And everybody knows her. It's a small town. And out we wheel Mrs. Smith. We say, Mrs. Smith, you've suffered some internal injuries and you need surgery right away. She says, OK, go. And then we say, and Mrs. Smith, you also had, need a transfusion. You're, you're bleeding. You're anemic. You need a transfusion right away. And she says, absolutely not. That's against my religion. Now, you know, people have said, that if Jehovah's Witnesses didn't exist, bioethicists would have invented them just for their lectures. <laughs> and that might be true. So poor, here's poor Mrs. Smith, who says no. Now we look to Mr. Smith, and we say, what's the deal here? Well, why do we look to Mr. Smith? Does he get to overrule her? Not if she's awake and alert and of sound mind. And we all know her. She's that history teacher. We know she's a bright, intelligent woman. She's of sound mind, and she's quite alert as we're doing this. We don't look to him. We look to him more for a, a reality check. So if he says, you know, yes, she's believed that her whole life. Uh, that's why if he says, you know, she was a Methodist this morning, then we think, well, maybe she, maybe she hit her head too and we don't know. But the bottom line is Mr. Smith doesn't get to decide. Mrs. Smith, by virtue of her autonomy, which is to say her self-rule, Mrs. Smith gets to refuse. If Mrs. Smith doesn't give us informed consent about that transfusion, we don't do it, even if it could cost her life. Well, sure enough, a minute later, another ambulance pulls up, and they pull out a stretcher. And who's on it? Junior Smith, Mrs. Smith's two-year-old son. And we say, Mrs. Smith, it's Junior Smith. She says, yes, I know. I recognize him, <laughs> which is also a good sign. And, and we say, he has the same injuries as you. He has to go to the operating room. And she says, go. And we say, well, he's also very anemic, and he's bleeding badly internally. He has to be transfused, or he could die. And she says, no transfusion. It's against our religion. What do we do? Hillary, what do we do? We transfuse him. <laughs> right answer. And we transfuse him because parental autonomy is a misnomer and a myth. Autonomy means self-rule, literally. You can't have self-rule over someone else. You will read it in the literature about parental autonomy. You'll hear people use the phrase. I would argue it's a bogus term. Um, what we really mean by parental autonomy is parental authority. The parents have authority over what happens to their kids. It's not as strong as autonomy. Mrs. Smith can refuse for herself, even if it means she's going to die, but she can't refuse for her child if it means the child is going to die. Parental authority 
is more limited than patient autonomy. Now, down below is another case, a case I actually had. That's not a picture of the case I took here. But um, when I was at that community hospital some years ago, I had a child born at 23 weeks, terribly sick, terribly sick. The child, on top of everything else, was probably septic um, and was quite anemic and was in DIC. It was very anemic in DIC, 23 weeks, and I believe septic. So I called, uh, you know, I talked to the parents, you know, we can push on with this or not. I gave them a choice. Yes, we want you to intubate, resuscitate. We talked about it before delivery. We want you to try to save the baby. Okay, then that's what we're going to do. As good as informed consent as you can get under such pressured circumstances. The baby came out, and I went back to them and said, okay, we're doing all this, and also I need to transfuse the baby. I want you to know that. And they said, no transfusion. Mother said, I'm a Jehovah's Witness, no transfusion. Well, now we're in a hell of a pickle. I called my colleague at Yale, because this baby was too small to stay in New London. I was going to send this baby to Yale. And I asked her, I said, well, this is the situation. I'm about to send this baby to you with the parents. And I said, what do you think we should do? And she said, we should call the Ethics Committee. <laughs> and I said, well, we could do that, but there's a problem with that, which is I'm the chairman of the Ethics Committee. So <laughs> if we call the Ethics Committee, we get me. Um, so what do you think we should do? Um, and I want to get back to that and, and, and tell you the end of that story as we go. I will tell you that, in retrospect, I discussed it with all the senior faculty. This was many years ago when I was junior faculty. I discussed it with all the senior neonatology faculty. And you'll be pleased to know that every one of them knew exactly, without question, what should be done. What was interesting was half of them knew, without question, the child should be transfused. And half of them knew, without question, that the child should not be transfused. <laughs> That's a true story, unlike most of what I say. <laughs> so the AAP has discussed this specifically in a, in a document we just put out, which many of you likely have seen, that we think children are entitled to treatment likely to prevent significant harm, suffering, or death. Likely to prevent significant harm, suffering, or death. In the case of religious objections, protect the child's future ability to decide for himself. And this reflects, actually, a Supreme Court ruling Prince uh, versus the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. It's a well-known case among ethicists. Some of you may have heard it. This was in the 1940s, actually. And it had to do with religious objections to certain things and, and religious people doing things to their children. It didn't specifically address the medical arena, but ended up becoming applied to the medical arena. Anyway, what they said was, people have a right to make, parents have a right to make martyrs of themselves. But it does not follow that they have a right to make martyrs of their children until such time as those children reach an age where they can make that decision for themselves. So we protect the child's future ability to decide for himself. So we transfuse Junior Smith. Hillary, as always, is right. <laughs> now, it's worth noting that there's less unanimity in judicial decisions if it's not uh, life-threatening or less likely to work or if there's significant adverse effects. So let's go back to our patient in New London, that tiny baby. This parents refused the transfusion. Um, I would say to you that they are within their rights to refuse that transfusion. Because remember the scenario, it's a child that born at 23 weeks in DIC and sepsis. Is the transfusion likely to save that child's life? No, it's not. That child's chances of survival, we can argue over the exact number, but no one would say it's anywhere near 50%, even with the transfusion. So the transfusion, while it could benefit the child, was not likely to save the child. Um, in the end, as so often happens with these cases, the parents ended up consenting to the transfusion, or giving permission, I should say, for the transfusion. So who gives consent or permission? Um, now again, the, we use the firm informed consent, another common term for us. We say, well, did you get consent, or did you consent that kid? Um, 
really, consent is something one gives for oneself. You give consent for a procedure on you, you give permission for a procedure or a test on your child. So what we're actually looking for is informed consent is one thing for adults, parental permission. And by parents, I also mean in some cases, uh, we recognize that it's not the parents who speak for the child, another surrogate decision maker. Parental permission is the other, um, the other aspect of that. So who gives the permission? Um, over 18, for a legally competent person, that individual gives consent. But under 18, it has to be the parent or a legally authorized individual. You all know that. And just to go over them briefly, you also know that there are specific exceptions. There is the emergency exception rule, also known as the doctrine of implied consent, which is based on the fact that what would reasonable parents want me to do in this circumstance if there's no time to get their permission? We base our decision on what's in the patient's best interest. There are conditions. The life or health must be in danger. The legal guardian is unavailable or unable to provide consent. The treatment or transport cannot be safely delayed. If this is something that's terribly important, but it can wait a few hours, then keep looking for the parents. Don't just do it. Also, the professional administers only treatment for emergent conditions that pose an immediate threat to the child, which is to say you can't say, well, listen, while we're setting the fracture, why don't we go ahead and get this circumcision done? <laughs> we're not going to do that. We can only address the specific emergency that uh, cannot wait until we get parents. This includes things necessary to save the kid's life or prevent disability or harm, but also other things such as fractures, infections, and pain. Now, there's going to be a threshold in there. At what point can you wait and at what point do you need to act? But I would really stress uh, the importance when it's not an emergency of waiting. I would really stress the importance also of doing a medical screening examination or evaluation. Every kid who shows up in your emergency room or shows up to a physician for emergency services, you don't need the parents there to do an emergency screening evaluation because you don't really know if this is an emergency until you check. So you're certainly within your rights, indeed you're obligated to make sure this can wait until the parents show up uh, to make a decision. If it can't wait, then you need to act. Other exceptions, the mature minors. Now, this is both a legal and an ethical doctrine, if you will, that there are some kids, and in general it applies to kids 14 and over, there are some kids who have the maturity, who have the insight to make these decisions for themselves. Now, I have to say that in some states, this is actually a decision reached by a judge. So when Jack is trying to decide chemotherapy issues with a 15-year-old, perhaps this 15-year-old's in a position to give informed consent. Perhaps what's needed is parental permission. Perhaps what's needed is both. It's a complicated matter. Sometimes the judge decides that this kid qualifies as a mature minor. Sometimes the pediatrician decides. And it's different in different states. So one of the most important things here is you've got to know the rules where you work. So again, I, no doubt you guys know these rules in New Hampshire far better than I. And if there's any question, you have an attorney here who can help you with that as well. Now, there are also emancipated minors. You know this well. It, it varies from state to state. And if you're married, if so if a, if a minor, someone under 18 is married, that individual is typically emancipated and therefore legally entitled to provide their own consent. Parents sometimes, in the military sometimes, sometimes kids living on their own. Again, different states have different laws about this. And lastly, the exception to the requirement for someone over 18 are the special circumstances. Something that most of you are familiar with and some of the students or residents might not be. That if it's a matter of mental health or contraception, drug or alcohol addiction, or sexually transmitted diseases, these are things that you don't necessarily need parental permission to diagnose or to treat. 
And the reason for that is pretty clear, that if this 16-year-old girl who thought she had a sexually transmitted disease knew that she couldn't get treated without her mother or father's permission, she might be, in many family settings, much less likely to seek medical help. So we want them to seek medical help when they have these things where they may have difficulty going to their parents talking about them. So these are important exceptions. You don't need the parents' permission to treat these issues. Now, we talked briefly before about patient assent, right? So we have informed consent, parental permission, but there's also patient assent is the third important component of what's called informed consent in the pediatric realm. We have to, we have an obligation to get the patient to go along with what we're going to do. So what the AAP says, the Committee on Bioethics says, is we need to help the patient achieve an appropriate awareness of the condition that's developmentally appropriate. Tell them what to expect, assess their understanding, solicit an expression of willingness. Is this okay with you? Yes, it's okay with me to participate in the proposed care or research. But I would implore you, if the patient has no choice, don't pretend the patient has a choice. What a rotten thing to do to a kid. So this is what we're going to do. Is this okay with you? No. Well, too bad. We're doing it. No. If it's something that's going to happen and the child doesn't get to say no, then make that clear to the child. Just tell them this is what's going to happen. They still deserve to have things explained at a developmentally appropriate level. And of course, that's a complicated matter. As a neonatologist, I defer to everybody else in the room about kids at different ages and what they're able uh, to process and how much assent they should be able to give. It's very different uh, whether a 17-year-old agrees with his chemotherapy versus a three-year-old. These are very different issues. Um, I would also make the point that there is an exception to what I just said here. This is an important point, which is research. In general, in the realm of clinical research, if the parents say, yes, my child can participate in this clinical trial, but the kid does not give assent, then the general rule is you don't do it. There may be some exceptions to that if the clinical trial is the only way to get a treatment that you really believe could offer a tremendous benefit to this child. But if this is research meant to benefit future patients and the kid doesn't want to participate, then the kid doesn't have to participate. Here's a fascinating issue. Informed consent in pregnancy. Maternal treatment for disorders like SVT, emergency C-sections for fetal indications. Is the woman's consent always required? If we have to do something to save a fetus's life, <laughs> to protect the brain of a future baby, we have a woman who is uh, in labor, and there's a severe bradycardia. The obstetrician fears that this child is either going to be dead or have severe lifetime neurologic disabilities if I don't get this baby out now. And the mother says, no C-section. What does this mean? Do we really need her consent? And the short answer in the interest of time is, yeah, you really do. You really do. Because you can't get at that baby except through the woman, except through her skin or through her cervix. And so her right to bodily integrity is felt by the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology and by most bioethicists, including this one. Her right to bodily integrity trumps. This is a rights-based analysis would say that's the right that trumps. In addition, there's another field of ethics called feminist ethics, which is different than the principles, which is a fascinating area, which focuses on a couple different things. One on relationships, which I'll, and the importance of relationships, which we can get to later. But it also focuses on specifically addressing individuals who have traditionally been uh, mistreated or not gotten their fair share from the medical establishment or from society. This includes, among others, women. They also, it also addresses minorities, the poor, sometimes children. 
But for a variety of reasons and through a variety of analyses, yes, we believe that you can't do something to a pregnant woman without her consent, even if it's to save her baby's life. But of course, nothing's ever that simple. Is there an exception? Here's a case I would submit for your consideration. A 15-year-old pregnant girl who is insulin-dependent, diabetes, very difficult glucose control. She's hospitalized at 34 weeks. She won't talk to us. The obstetricians say she won't talk to us. The nurses say she won't talk to us. She talks to her friends on the phone, but she won't talk to us. She's in a normal grade in school. She's a bright kid, but she won't talk to us. She's an angry, frightened 15-year-old girl. Sometimes she refuses glucose testing or fetal monitoring. Her mother says, please do whatever you need to do for the health of my daughter and the baby. The obstetricians come to the ethics committee and say, who gives consent for the insulin or for the C-section? Because the obstetricians have had it drilled into their head, you don't do a C-section without the woman's permission. Is this a woman? I think, strictly speaking, some people say, well, she's pregnant, she's a woman. Others would say she's 15 years old, she's not a woman, she's still a child. She's actually in that in-between zone known as adolescence, which is scary for lots of reasons, including ethical decision-making. Who gives consent for the C-section? Can we do this because this 15-year-old's mother says, do the surgery? Now, what's interesting about this, of course, if she had appendicitis and she was saying, no, I don't want the surgery, and her mother said, yes, I give you permission, do the surgery, I promise you, she'd get the surgery. What about this? This was a confusing situation. The resolution, I, I, I'd like to think, illustrates what a marvelous physician and ethicist I am. Um, so I'll share it with you. Uh, the resolution was I went and spoke to the girl, and I said, uh, told her who I was, and I was chairman of the ethics committee. You want to chat? And she said, sure. And we talked for a while. She was actually talking with me very nicely. We had a nice conversation. And eventually I asked her, Mommy, do, you, do you get along with your mother? She goes, yeah, yeah, we get along well. I said, do you uh, plan to live with your mother after the baby's born? Yeah, the baby and I are going to still be with my mother, sure. Um, is it OK with you if we let your mother kind of be the mom here and make the decisions? Yeah, that's OK with me. So recognizing that this girl doesn't live in isolation, that this is about relationships as well, we come to a resolution that, yes, she'll let her mother make these decisions. So when she goes back to her, I'm not talking to anybody about anything. She's told me in a lucid time that, yes, her mother can make decisions. Now, I do think this illustrates what an outstanding physician and communicator I am. But the part of the story which I'm tempted to leave out, but I won't, was after spending a couple hours trying to sort this through, I called the obstetrician. And I said, listen, I'm going upstairs to meet with this girl. And the obstetrician said, good. You know what? The nurse has told me, for some reason today, all of a sudden, she's talking. So, her awakening predated my visit by a few hours, apparently. <laughs> but the problem goes on. What happens when a 15-year-old has a baby? Who provides informed position, uh, permission for that baby of a 15-year-old girl? Should a 15-year-old mother be accorded the same authority as an adult mother? This is another complicated aspect of informed consent or informed permission that we don't like to talk about because it hurts our heads. Yeah. I'll tell you the standard practice uh, and the law in Connecticut, uh, which my hospital attorney told me, which is, that um, a 15-year-old who still lives with her parents would need her parents' permission, a pregnant 15-year-old, she needs her parents' permission for her ingrown toenail pr procedure, but she can give permission for her baby's uh, heart surgery. I talked, to, I talked to this with a friend of mine who's a federal judge who said that's ridiculous, the law doesn't fit, that's crazy, and the law was never intended to do that. 
It's terrible that this is the legal situation. This may be your legal situation here. It's something similar to this in all sorts of places. People didn't anticipate 15-year-old moms when they made these rules. You've got to get the mom's permission to do the surgery. So the law doesn't fit. My legal advice, once again, is don't take legal advice from me. The ethical issue, I would say to you, is justice, which is to say that equals should be treated equally, which is to say that I'm talking about the babies now, that this baby, in order for me to do consent to do a procedure or sign up with most kids in my unit for a research project, I need to convince a mentally competent adult that it's an acceptable thing to do. Ah, but in some cases, all I need to do is convince a 15-year-old girl, a girl who we've decided as a society and as a profession is not fit to decide about her own ingrown toenail procedure. Consider this, the sick grandma scenario. These are the only three people in this family circle in this particular thought experiment. The grandma, the 15, or the, that's right, she's a grandma, the 15-year-old mother, and the baby. Now, we just talked that that 15-year-old mother makes the decisions for the baby, gives permission for your research project for the baby. All you got to do is convince her. She looks like she might be hard to convince sometimes, but you got to convince her. These are the only three people in the family. The grandmother, the 40-year-old woman, slips into a coma, and she needs surgery. Under what circumstances would her 15-year-old daughter be approached and asked to give permission for her mother's surgery? Under what circumstances would she be allowed to serve as the surrogate decision maker for her mother? The answer is, under no circumstances. A judge would decide. Someone else will decide. But under no circumstances, that woman is absolutely entitled to an adult surrogate decision maker if she's unable to speak for herself. Everybody in this hospital is entitled to an adult surrogate decision maker, except for the babies born to early adolescent mothers. For some reason, they're entitled to something less. That, I think, is a problem of justice. I would suggest to you that the legal requirement, both for medical care and research, is all you got to do is convince a 15-year-old. But I would say our ethical obligation is to go beyond what the law requires. So I recognize you can do that. Just convince that 15 or 14-year-old girl that you want to sign this baby up for your study, and you're in. Or you want to take this baby to surgery, and you're in. I would say that your ethical requirement is greater. And I think the answer lies in relationships, in understanding that that girl does not live now, did not live before she had this baby, and will not live after this baby, in isolation. And ethics always talk about, well, this one guy's on a desert island, and he finds a coconut, says he has to save it for his, you know. We've always got these strange setups, but we don't live on a desert island alone. We live, as the feminist ethicists remind us, in a web of relationships. And decisions that support and help those relationships endure are the best decisions. So what I suggest in this situation is that you ask this girl to identify an adult that she trusts and that that person serve as the co-decision maker. It's often the mother, but not always. Okay, let's switch gears a little bit and just spend the last little bit of the talk uh, about an important ethical breakdown. This just in a year ago uh, from the New York Times, the same paper that broke the story about the Tuskegee study. They reported last year that 23 academic institutions authorized a research project that failed to meet the most basic standard providing adequate informed consent. It was startling and deplorable. Would have been bad enough if it was just deplorable, but it was startling and deplorable. And just to make matters a little bit worse, one of those 23 academic institutions was Yale. So some of you know what I'm talking about, and those of you who aren't neonatology have no reason necessarily to know about it. It's something called the support trial, which was carried out by the Neonatal Research Network of the NIH, which consisted at the time 
of 23 academic nurseries. Basically, they were trying to figure out whether saturations in the high 80s or low 90s are better for you. And so kids were randomized to get them in the high 80s or low 90s. And the standard of care at that time was anywhere from 85 to 95 was reasonable. So for various reasons, various docs picked one range or the other. So they were randomized, uh, hoping that uh, they would reduce blindness from retinopathy of prematurity, which is thought to be associated with higher oxygen saturations. <coughs> what they found was that the kids with the lower saturations had less retinopathy, but a higher incidence of death. And many of the informed consent forms didn't say that this is the case. Now, a group called Public Citizen, a public advocacy group, led a great outcry, which then also led uh, to the, the HHS Office for Human Research Protections. And they scolded uh, all these centers, but mainly the University of Alabama that was a lead center, saying, you did not tell them about the reasonable and foreseeable risks, such as these kids could die. You got to face that, and you got to provide us with a plan to make sure this doesn't happen again. This is very bad. This makes the New York Times. Well, the, interestingly enough, the NIH fires back and says, wait a minute. We had no way of knowing that the kids in the lower saturation group were more likely to die. The data at that time suggested that they did not. The available data at that time showed that there was no greater mortality at the lower saturation groups. So what they were basically being told was, you should have told the people about the results of your study before you did the study. And there was a great deal of objection in the neonatology community. A bunch of ethicists, a bunch of pediatric ethicists wrote a letter to the New England Journal. Some of you may have seen it. Ben Wilfond was the uh, principal author. I actually agreed with the letter, but did not sign it because uh, I was one of the neonatologists working in one of these nurseries. So it's a bit self-serving for me then to write a letter saying, those guys didn't do anything wrong when I was one of those guys. Um, I think that, that this is still ongoing. It's a lawsuit. It's a big argument in the world of ethics. It's worth noting that informed consent involves the reasonably foreseeable risks, and that this is the big accusation. Even now, more than a generation, 40 years after Tuskegee, not just a couple of places way down in the Deep South, but 23 major academic nurseries in the country failed with regard to informed consent, at least according to this government agency. Now, other government agencies and many others say, no, they didn't fail. The argument continues. The informed consent process could arguably have been better. But this wasn't Tuskegee. Um, and it certainly wasn't uh, Nuremberg. Nevertheless, informed consent, believe it or not, is hot in the news. So it's a good thing we're talking about it, huh? <laughs> Lastly, I want to talk just about some of the common mistakes made with regard to informed consent and permission. One is a failure to assess the patient's level of understanding. And I don't need to get into that. I think you know what I mean. The second is the savviness requirement, which we talk about. You've got to disclose all reasonable options, not just the ones you want them to choose from. All reasonable options they deserve to hear about, even if they're not savvy enough to ask. <coughs> you need to disclose all the important information that a reasonable person would want to know. This is where we fail, is that we lean too much toward the physician-oriented informed consent. This is what we usually tell them as opposed to the patient-oriented consent, which is, this is what they'd really want to know. Would they want to know about that? Yeah, they would. Failure to address the therapeutic misconception. We talked about this briefly last night. I had uh, a patient who was being consented, as the verb is sometimes used, right? Some parents were being asked if their kid could participate in this trial about two different nutritional strategies. And we had no idea which nutritional strategy was better. There was equipoise. That's why the study was being done. And after the parents were approached, 
the mother said to me, I wasn't on the study, I was the kids attending, and she said to me, she goes, sure, you guys can do that study, whatever's best for the baby. <laughs> we don't know what's best for the baby. That's why we're doing the study. But there is this therapeutic misconception, this belief that when we show up looking and acting and sounding like physicians and talk to them about this, our research trials, that they get the incentive, they get the sense that we're actually trying to do something to help them. Because most of our conversations with them are about, here's what I want to do to help your child. But all of a sudden, we're doing one that's not often to help their child at all, maybe to help future children. They misinterpret that, and it's our job to address that misinterpretation, to tell them, no, participating in this study, it's not gonna make life any better for your child, which is usually the case. Not always, I recognize there are exceptions. But there's a blurring of lines. Physicians and clinical researchers get confused, because very often, they're the same people. Just come by on a different day, and one day, you're the kids attending, and the next week you come by, and you're a clinical researcher. Um, the last two things, the more you say, the less they hear. About this whole support trial, there's a woman named Kelly Burnham. She's a reporter down in Orlando. Some of you may have read the series of articles that she wrote about her own preterm baby and what she went through in, uh, in dealing with that kid's intensive care course. And with regard to the support trial, she thought that this, all this hubbub was almost funny and really out of line because she said, you know, she said, people came to me and I signed all sorts of things. I have no idea what I was signing. I hadn't slept for days and I was scared out of my mind. So I keep that in mind when we're getting, particularly in the newborn ICU, but elsewhere. We're often dealing with people who haven't slept and are scared out of their mind. And we're talking about sometimes complex things. And you do have to mention all the reasonably foreseeable risks. But ultimately, it's also helpful to try and summarize it in a couple sentences in addition. Because the more you say, the less they hear. And what Kelly Burnham said, I didn't hear any of what anybody said when I was signing that stuff. If someone came to me, if they looked me in the eye and had a nice smile, I signed the paper. This is not a stupid woman. This is an educated woman, an experienced woman. This is what she told us. The last pitfall, the last common mistake, is that true informed consent is impossible. Many people in the room have heard it. Many people in the room have said it. And it's absolutely correct. It's impossible to get true informed consent or informed permission. People say, in order for me to tell them everything they really need to know to make an informed decision, I'd have to send them to medical school and then through a residency and a fellowship. True, true, perfect informed consent is not possible. I think that's true. The sad part is that we sometimes use that as a license to then do a half-assed job with informed permission. The perfect is indeed the enemy of the good. The fact that we can't do a perfect job does not relieve us of the obligation to do a good job. So if someone says, well, we can't really give true informed consent, so I just won't mention to them that 20% of these people bleed to death. No, we can't do a perfect informed consent, but we can do a good job. And the fact that we can't be perfect is no excuse not to. So in conclusion, this is a legal as well as ethical doctrine. Know the rules where you work, which is here. We can approach this based on principle-based ethics and consider rights and obligations, on feminist ethics and consider the importance of relationships as we approach all this, or on virtue ethics, in particular the importance of honesty. A wise man named Jim Burnett told me last night that this whole process is so much predicated on trust, and it's true. Why did Kelly Burnham sign those consents? But that person had a nice smile and looked her in the eye. Because she trusted them. So that's the trust that the overwhelming majority of the time, that's the trust that your patients and research subjects put in you. That's an awesome responsibility. The obligation to be honest, completely honest, about all reasonable options. That's huge. And it's ours. 
And lastly, this is all really about locating the thresholds, right? So how likely does a risk have to be for us to disclose it? How clear must it be that the, what the parents are refusing is in the child's best interest? How dangerous does not treating have to be before we seek to overrule parental refusal to give consent? These are threshold arguments. And locating that threshold is, of course, the real hard work of being a physician. And that's where the real work is. <clears throat> what I hope is that what we've talked about here, the ethics, the history, some of the ideas behind informed consent, gives you a framework to help you locate um, that very difficult <clears throat> threshold and help you obtain an appropriate informed permission. And I thank you so much for your kind attention. I hope you got I thought I really understood a lot about ethics, and then you sort of shattered that belief. Same thing happened to me when I wrote it, yeah. <laughs> uh, I, my question is about the support uh, and about research in general, uh, and where individual um, the ethics of the individual and the ethics of societal good. So a lot of us in neonatology, as you know, are concerned that the sequelae of this um, scrutiny of the support trial um, and then the potential consequences, which is to make an already cumbersome informed consent process more cumbersome, uh, may actually lead to us not advancing the field uh, the way we should because of uh, not being able to do safe and ethical research. Um, where, where do you see those that sort of um, conflict between the right of the individual to ethics and conform, informed consent for trials and the need for us to do pragmatic and reasonable studies uh, where there truly is equipoise and you don't really know uh, the difference of what I, I would argue that the outcome of the support trial ultimately will save tons of lives because of the recognition that we really should probably be in the higher uh, oxygen saturation range. So, so the trial actually probably may have harmed arguably the ones who enrolled in the lower oxygen for the trial. On the flip side, it, it will probably save uh, many, many lives. Well, I think you've hit the nail on the head with this whole support trial thing. And one of the biggest concerns is that indeed, this is just gonna make clinical research harder to do. And we need this research, because most of you guys don't know this, but we really don't know what the hell we're doing in that newborn ICU most of the time. <laughs> and we're doing the best we can with the information we have. But some very good, smart people are designing these trials to say, let's figure out what we're doing. And much of what we do is, in fact, based on good trials. Much of it's based on tradition and our best guess and our experience. But that's the big fear, is that this is just going to make it harder. And you know, the NIH, excuse me, um, the New England Journal, in their editorial about all this stuff, actually described it, however, despite their criticisms, as a model for how medical progress should proceed. And it is. It is. Um, and so I think that the criticisms are overblown. And I think that the possible sequelae of that is, over the next several years, trials will be harder to do. People will be more reluctant. IRBs, because all the IRBs of 23 institutions signed off on this thing. So they're catching all kinds of hell. And it's actually the institutions that are being held responsible more than the individuals. This is also a big shift in informed consent. The responsibility and the blame falls to institution. 
good news for those of us who are individuals. But if this scares us all from doing the trials that need to be done, it's a cost we shouldn't pay. So where is, it's a threshold argument once again. We obviously can't sacrifice the lives of the innocent to save more lives now or in the future. How much can we sacrifice from the innocent, from the patient in front of us? And that, my friends, is a threshold argument. What I would suggest where I lean in that, because the, there is the greater good, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few for the Star Trek fans, right? Um, or the one. Um, but there's going to be some threshold beyond which we can't go. And what I would say is there's a lot of, lot of good, smart people who are looking out for the needs of the many. There really are. But ultimately, when it's your patient, you should assume that the responsibility of looking out for that individual's interest is yours. So these are decisions to be made on an institutional basis, thinking globally. But for us as individual physicians at the bedside, this is my patient. My responsibility is this kid here now. And I can't sacrifice this child's interests for future children. But if there is equipoise, which is to say if we don't know which is better, to get these kids enrolled in randomized trials with reasonable informed consent is absolutely essential. It's absolutely essential for us to move that forward. And that's the big fear with the support. You're exactly right. Um, my question is going to be related more to a non-life-threatening situation. Um, but one of the things that's been striking me recently is with the cost of health care shifting more and more to the patient and to the individual, um, one aspect of, of um, informed consent that has been missing in our conversations is the economic impact of a decision on an individual or on a family. So what's, what's been interesting to me is, as physicians, we are asking people to consent to procedures or consent to treatments with no understanding, really, of what the economic impact of that decision is going to be on them and on their family. And should one like to provide that information, it's incredibly impossible to get that information. So, what are sort of the what are the what are the economic ethics now of having us help patients and families make good decisions for themselves, but also weighing the the economics of the choices that they're making? That's a fascinating point, um, and I'm glad I didn't talk to you before the talk, or that would have added like 20 minutes to the talk and would have killed me, because I, I I've not read about this much, and I certainly haven't considered putting in a talk. That's a really interesting point, but let's think about this a minute, because you touched on the problem. So what we're, going to, what we're saying, because we're taught to treat them like clients, consumers, um, you know, these are our clients, right? Uh, and so someone said to me, what are your customers? So I was asked some years ago, uh, what do you do for, what have you done for customers lately, you know? And I said, I don't have any customers. I don't drag myself out of bed in the middle of the night for a customer with no money. For patients with no money, I do it all the time. Um, this, is a, this is a very different thing. These are our patients. But nevertheless, there's this idea we have to treat them as customers. So we're trying to sell our customers something, a, a treatment or a diagnostic test. We're trying to sell them that. And what you're suggesting is that part of this whole thing is they should know how much it costs. And you're absolutely, in my opinion, right. The problem is go to your hospital and ask them, how much does this cost? Yes. Depends on which way the wind is blowing. We've negotiated a special deal with that insurance company, but that pissed off that insurance company. And then the state stepped in and, and, and does it cost well? You know, talk about the savviness requirement. You get a bill and you go, holy crap, I mean, this happened to me. I got this huge bill years ago for one of my children in the emergency room. And uh, I said, well, what's this? Well, it wasn't an emergency. Well, they picked the wrong guy. 
So I got on the phone and I said, in this case, I mean, I'm sure I've been fooled by lots of other things. I said, no, it was an emergency and here's why. Okay, never mind, insurance will pay. Um, so you had to be savvy enough to ask. So I don't, you were right, but how we address that is extremely difficult because there are lots of people where I work who get all this for nothing, for nothing. And they tend to be the poorest people. And then lots of other people who get financially devastated by the same things. Um, and then there are other people who are the wealthier people who get financially hurt but not devastated. And it's all for the same thing. And it's so hard for us to know how much someone's going to have to pay when we're, I don't know the answer to that. Well, and don't they have the right to make that decision for themselves? I think they have a right to know exactly what something is going to cost. And that's something that the, that the healthcare system doesn't provide them at all. So we are, I, I grant your point, we are complicit in that system that basically does this to people and doesn't tell them how much it's going to cost, doesn't tell them it's negotiable. Uh, it's a mess. And you're right, that should be part of informed consent. Thanks for a great presentation. We're constantly introducing new technologies and new devices into practice at the unit. And sometimes we do it informally, sometimes we do it formally for quality improvement projects. What are your thoughts on informed consent for such interventions? Like we've introduced uh, new types of ventilators, transcutaneous monitors. <clears throat> Uh, in 2011, we introduced the electronic medical record. So should parent, patients be aware, aware of the risks? And, uh, well, the rules, I tell you the rules first, and then we can talk more about should, or maybe we can talk afterwards. I know we're meeting afterwards. That's complicated. The rules, of course, are if it's part of a clinical trial, if you get a new ventilator and you say, you know what, this ventilator might be better. So we're going to use the old ventilator on odd days and the new ventilator on even days, or patients born on odd days and patients born on even days. That would be a very reasonable way to try the new ventilator and see after a couple of years. That's a randomized trial. For that, you need informed consent. You need your IRB to approve the protocol. Right. If you just say, you've got a new ventilator here. Let's try it out on a few kids and see how it works. That's not a trial. That's innovative practice. And these rules, these same rules, don't apply. What you, and I'm, I'm, I suspect you know this, Colin. So the, then the question you have is, well, should they? And the answer is, in certain circumstances, they should. For example, if there's a new machine and I've never used it before and I'm not quite sure what it's going to do and I want to try it because I'm desperate, yes, I think that the parents should be told about this um, and told what's going on. Even, even if it's not within the format of a trial, if there's no fancy forms, they deserve to know and be given a choice. Um, if, on the other hand, you know, you got a new brand of pulse oximeters, I don't think you necessarily need to talk to the parents and say, by the way, these pulse oximeters are new. We just got them last week. We hear this brand is good, but we have, you know. So, I hate to say this, but it's true. There will be a threshold of how innovative is the innovation, how risky is the innovation. At some point, even if it's not part of a trial, the parents deserve to know. You know, we've never tried it this way before, but here's why we're going to do it. They deserve to know that. So if I might be really involved, but I'm, I'm, in, I'm involved in by the residents who took on the, top, the topics that they said we took on in the past uh, three months. So I like, for the residents and students and others in the room, one way to think of equipoise, and Bill made me think about this at PAS, one way to think about equipoise is that every day without evidence like the support trial, we are conducting N of one clinical trials on every single patient when we're at equipoise. So across the country, neonates are being exposed to either low or high oxygen saturations in the 85 to 95 range without the evidence that was provided by the support trial. And I think that was one of the challenges Bill brought up to me at PAS about without the ability to do these trials, 
we're allowing ourselves to experiment in every single patient. And so that's one way to think about what equipoise is. And I don't know if I've said that about No, not at all. I think that's an excellent point. Just talk about this term equipoise for our folks in the audience who haven't heard it before. But uh, more, I think the, there'll be lots of time. No, there won't be lots of time. The new doctor here is auditory, and, and I think he's going to be meeting with some other small, soft subgroups over the course of the morning. Thank you. Thank you.